beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now reading from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 18. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, sorry, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we are, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. For this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. (laughs) Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. It's always a longer walk than I remember. Thanks, Ben. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you're in control of all things. Um, You're in control of salvation. And we pray that you would shine your light into our hearts and reveal the knowledge of your glory displayed in the face of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, You know that phrase... um, what you see is what you get. Um, it's so untrue when it comes to the reality of things, especially in God's world. Uh, God has designed the world that what you see is not what you get. It's far from the opposite. Uh, what you get in God's economy is so much greater than what is seen. You might have picked it up there in the last verse, verse 18. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And the Bible itself is an illustration of this. Look at this old tattered book uh, that we sit and gather and and hear so much from and consider so long um, and plumb the depths of the treasures of what's in here. doesn't look like much on the outside, uh, but it's God's Word. It's it's, it's alive and active. We don't sit and interpret it like we would any other book, read it, comprehend it, throw it aside, done with that. No, no, no. God's Word interprets us. It cuts us through the heart, exposes sin, brings life by giving us transformation to be more and more like Jesus. Uh, This is God's Word, (laughs) alive and active. And so, are you tired of reading the Bible? You're like, ah, this chunk, I read this four years ago, whatever, you know. Don't let that be you. Or are you tempted to think that God's Word's irrelevant for your day-to-day life? That can't be us. God's Word is alive and active and useful for everything for our lives, for, for Christians all the way down the centuries, for every age of Christian there's been, and for every stage of Christian life. Coming to new life, uh, growing up in Jesus, how to live, how to grow as a Christian, how to die as a Christian, it's all here. And so I'm stoked that we get to spend time in, in this Word, in God's Word, um, doing this activity which is profound together. Uh, And so, we're going to do two things tonight. First, we're going to look at this chapter and and look at what God had to say to the Corinthian church back in the first century uh, in its context. Then secondly, we're going to spend as much time as we can beginning to just plumb the depths of the riches of this chapter. It's been an awesome chapter for me to dwell in for as long as I have this week and I hope to rub off some of that on you for this week. Um, And hopefully I can get to all five implications that I want to draw out of what we see here tonight. So let's get stuck into it, no time to waste. Um, First, what's going on? What's Paul saying? Why is he saying it? Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that as we've been through 2 Corinthians, it's a a letter to the church in Corinth, the Christians there in the first century. Um, Paul writes it to them. And you'll know that they have a bit of a complex history of relationship, relationship status, it's complicated between Paul and the Corinthian church. Thanks, Lucy. Good one. <laughs> ha! <laughs> um, and that's the context of this letter. The, the, the Corinthian church, the Christians there, um, they're wandering away from Paul. And as they wander away from Paul, they wander away from his message, his teaching. So come across a few pages, three in my Bible, to chapter 11, verse 5. like that sound. Paul says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. Now, as a group of other Christians, so-called Christians in town, preachers in town, uh, they're setting themselves up against Paul and his ministry, saying, he is inferior, Um, we are superior. (laughs) They're promoting themselves, right? And the result is they're drawing the Corinthian Christians to themselves away from Paul. They're saying, he's not as good at speaking as us, Uh, He doesn't look as successful and impressive as us. People aren't flocking to him like they're flocking to... In fact, they're they're leaving him to come to us. We're super, right? (laughs) Now, what does Paul say in response to this? We could imagine all sorts of ways that he could draw them back. Get back into the preaching gym, go harder. You can do it. Show yourself to be spirit. That's not what he does. Look at verse 6. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge 
We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. That's a very ordinary response, isn't it? Surprising that he said, you know what, Corinthians? You're right. You're totally right. I'm unimpressive. But I have knowledge. And I've made that clear to you. And by implication, I take it that these so-called super apostles speak without knowledge and speak in a way that confuses it and makes it hard to understand. Right knowledge, truth, is what really matters. It's what Paul really, really cares about. Not the impressiveness of the messenger, but the truth and the clarity of the message. Now come back to chapter 4, verse 5. For what we preach is not ourselves. Paul does not preach himself. Unlike the so-called super apostles that would have to preach themselves over and against Paul. But, back to the verse, Jesus Christ as Lord. We do preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And here's how we do it, says Paul. Verse 2. We renounce secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's defense of himself in the face of opposition is to say, we have knowledge, we've made it clear. We set forth the truth plainly. Paul, he looks like a plain minister, he's got a plain truth to tell, and that's what it looks like on the outside, but in reality, the unseen Truth is that that plain truth is the power of God to save. The power of God to save. So come to verse 4. We're going to begin to see Paul unpack it here in verse 4. Have a look. The God of this age, now by that he means Satan. Little g God of this age, this realm, this time, Satan. You can see it in other places in the Bible. Has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? So that... They cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The unseen reality for all of humanity, for all of us at one point, is that Satan had blinded our minds, filled our thoughts with lies, filled our eyes with darkness, so that we can't even perceive the reality that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is our Lord that his lordship extends over this whole world, over every single human being, yourself, myself included. What Paul preaches is that reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. It is our ultimate reality. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, it's reality. Right now, Jesus is alive and well in heaven, reigning over his world, reigning over us, reigning over you. He's your Lord, whether you like it or not. And if you can't see that, if you, if you can't know that, it's because Satan has blinded you from this truth. That's an astonishing truth, isn't it? Satan has blinded you from that truth. And if you, if we go on living our lives ignorant and blind to this ultimate reality, then we're fools and we're destined for destruction. The movie The Matrix, it might be too outdated, uh, for most, I always get surprised when I hear when it was made. Can't even remember now. But there's a newish one, isn't there? That's coming out or came out. I don't watch movies anymore. Um, but The Matrix presents this scary possibility that our perception of reality, everything we think is true, is actually controlled by machines. They immerse our consciousness 
in digital lies to placate us, to uh, distract us from the reality that we're sitting in pods of goo with all sorts of tubes coming out of us and we're being used as human batteries for machines until we're dead like a battery and thrown away like a battery. Or perhaps you might know Ready Player One uh, a bit better. I watched this more recently. How devastating would it be if we lived our whole lives completely caught up in the lie of that digital interface, that virtual reality that covers our perception of things and failed to see that we're actually enslaved to a depressing and decaying reality of life and world. We'd have a hopeless existence, enslaved to the rich and powerful and left for dead. Our spiritual reality is, in, is that Satan is in that same business. His goal is to immerse us in a web of lies to the reality of the world that we live in, to placate, to placate us, to distract us from the ultimate reality that Jesus is Lord. And if he can distract us long enough, just long enough, until our bodies die, he wins. We will be destroyed by the justice of God in judgment. Friends, if we live our lives convinced by Satan that Jesus is irrelevant for our lives, then we've been blinded and we'll one day die and that fog will be lifted and we'll be looking at Jesus in his face in the, in the day of judgment and there will be a harsh and shocking reality that comes upon us when we realise the, the size of the offence that we've done towards the person who loved us, who made us, who gave himself for us and it will be too late. That's the fate of everyone who, verse 4, fails to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, if you're here tonight and you aren't convinced of that reality, you aren't living with Jesus as your Lord, speak to God now. Pray quietly in your own mind. Speak to him that he would help you see it because it's God's work to show that to open your mind, to shine his light into your heart. It's God's work to save, not mine. I, I can't, no one can convince you of this reality except God. Have a look at verse 6. For God, who said, let shine out of darkness, made his light shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Your creator, the one who brought the world into existence with a word, the one who gave life to everyone and everything with a word, including you, he's the only one that can shine light into your heart and unblind you. So get praying and pray that you would hear this, Jesus is Lord, plain and simple. You owe your entire life to him. You cannot go on ignoring him. You don't want to go on ignoring him and living in the lies that Satan tells, that he spins. You want to ask God to open your eyes to his lordship. It is the best way you can live in line with reality. It's pure wisdom. Verse 7, Paul sums up the nature of his plain and ordinary ministry with an illustration. It goes like this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul compares himself, his ministry to a jar of clay. Not, not a jar filled with clay, quite the opposite. A jar made of clay. An ordinary, unimpressive jar of the day. Like if I said, a plastic takeaway container. Right? That kind of thing. And what he means by this, the glass, uh, the, clay, the clay jar, 
oh, I'm too used to glass this day and age. What he means by that is that he looks weak and ordinary. He, he says it in the next few verses. Verse 8, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Doesn't look great. <laughs> He's just making it through. And all this is the case for what you see on the outside of Paul and his ministry. But on the inside, he carries great treasure. Why be like this, Paul? Why is your life like this? Why so weak on the outside? Back to verse 7. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The messenger is ordinary. The message is plain. Jesus is Lord. But the message is treasure. It is pure gold. Because when we come to realize this ultimate reality of our lives, we can put our trust in Jesus as our Lord and be saved from death to life. Paul's crystal clear that the purpose of why he does what he does, why it looks the way it looks, is to bring salvation to others. Take a look at the interplay between death and life from verse 10 onwards. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, a life of unimpressive suffering, just like Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our body. Verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life might also be revealed in our mortal body. Here's a summary, verse 12, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Skim down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, Paul's troubles don't seem light and momentarily, right? But they are light and momentary, he says. They're achieving for him, for us, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What better reason for not losing heart than knowing that your suffering, his suffering, is achieving an eternal glory. What is seen is temporary, comes and goes. What is unseen is eternal, an eternal glory. It has substance. Are you beginning to see why Paul says what he says and why he is the way he is, why his ministry is the way it is? You see, the Corinthians, they... They value superficial externals. They just they can't get past what they see with their eyes. A plain, ordinary message. A lack of followers flocking to Paul. In fact, running away from Paul. They see a suffering, unimpressive messenger. That's what they see. But God values the exact opposite, the unseen. The unseen reality is that Paul carries the very word and message of God the treasure of the gospel. God is the one who draws people to this message, not Paul. And Paul's suffering is by design so that people would see the power of God, not Paul's. Now, all this is crucially important for them to understand because without Paul's plain message, the the gospel of the glory of God, they'll be left blinded by Satan and left for destruction. Have you got all that? It's a lot, right? The Corinthians are wandering away from Paul because he looks weak and he goes, ah, you've got it completely back to front, upside down. Because I look weak, you should be flocking to me. 
because it should just show without a shadow of a doubt that this is God's glory and his mission, his work to save. So let's pour out, pull out as many implications from this as we can tonight. The first one is that what we've seen tonight um, is why good and godly ministry is evangelical in character. Okay? The gathering of God's people here at EV Church is called EV Church. The gathering here is called EV Night. The EV stands for evangelical. We are an evangelical church. And that word, the basis of that word is proclamation of the good news. It's the evangel is the good news. The word angel in evangel is messenger. This is a messenger of good news. The proclamation of good news. That is what we are. The passage in front of us, Paul's ministry, is exactly what we together want to be. We want to set forth the truth of the gospel plainly, verse 2. We want to preach Jesus as Lord, verse 5, and not ourselves. And that's why we do church the way we do. Firstly, our ministry is characterized by speaking. We believe, therefore we speak, verse 13. We speak. Where else do you voluntarily go? one night in a week, to sit down, 40 minutes, listen to some dude talk from the Bible. It's crazy, right? It looks so dumb. You guys are silly. From an, from an external perspective, it's just sad. But the message we preach, that you listen to, that you study through the week, is the power of God for salvation. Secondly, we as a whole church together, we work hard to speak about the plain truth of the gospel. We don't change the message to make it more attractive. We don't make it contemporary with contemporary values. We don't dress it up to make it look more spiritual and impressive and exciting. We don't leave out details of the reality of the harshness of the Christian life. We don't try to manipulate feelings with atmospheric music and glitter falling from the ceiling. This isn't what we're about. It's plain, simple, ordinary ministry. Anyone could do it. Anyone. And so Paul's appeal to the Corinthians is identical to my appeal to you tonight. Value what God values. Don't be like the Corinthians who fall for the superficial, the external, the fleeting. That mustn't be us. Don't leave church here because we don't have enough lights rigged on these things. Right? That's a thing. Don't leave church here because the band isn't what you want it to be. Sorry, band. Don't leave church here because you feel old compared to others. All those things are external and fleeting. Only leave church here because the message is wrong. Distorted, deceptive, verse 2. Those are good reasons to leave a gathering. And so why are you here tonight, here at EV night tonight? Are you here for the treasure or for the clay? Now the elephant in the room is that, I'll admit, our clay of a church is pretty impressive compared to some other clay jars going around right it's it we can fall into the trap of thing it's bigger it's impressive look at all the people here you know, it's quite a nice building lots of people to make friends with nice food after music's really great the point isn't go find the worst clay jar you can possibly find and stick to that the point is be here for the treasure not for the jar and we always want to make sure that What we do here, together, all of us, is not a distraction from that treasure, but actually holds up the treasure and points people to it. It says, 
this is what it's all about. Make Jesus as Lord massive in your lives. Magnify him in everything you do. So don't leave here, and when I say here, I mean this gathering, this church. Don't leave here lightly. It's easy to imagine that something like this exists everywhere. I'm studying, I'll get a job, I'll go down over here, get a job and I'll go to a church and it'll be great. I hope so. But unfortunately, not every church, not every gathering preaches the gospel plainly. Far from it. Stay here for the treasure of the gospel. Because unfortunately, our world is very super apostle world that we live in today. But if you absolutely must, if you absolutely must leave here one day and you have to pick another church, make sure that you haven't been distracted by the clay jar here. What will you look for in your new church? Good music, big building, good food, lots of young people, a night service. It's all sorts of things you can look for. They're all rubbish in comparison to what we should be looking for, which is a church which sets forth the truth of the gospel plainly. Jesus is Lord. A mate of mine had had to to move to Bathurst um, for three or four years. (laughs) A few people have done that. Um, he found a small local Prezi church to join, right? And it's, it was an old building, hard wooden seats, out-of-time piano player, out-of-tune singer, old, slow-speaking, droning, minister droning like my voice, <clears throat> cold biscuits, lukewarm tea. I might have made that one up, lukewarm tea. But probably, it's happened. No one else his age, right? Um, stood out like a sore thumb. What an adjustment from here. Um, it was a struggle. Clay jar to clay jar, yep. But a significant culture shift and temptation to give up. But he stayed. He stuck it out, he served, dug in. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And because they taught the Bible clearly and plainly. And because he knew that he'd have to look past the external. He'd have to. He'd have to value what God valued to survive. Now, it was a great uh, challenge and exercise for him to trust in God and fix his eyes, verse 18, on what is unseen unseen eternal glory of God. So make sure that if that's you, if you absolutely must move on from here, leave us here one day, that that's you, that you look for the right things in your next church. Second implication, they go quicker than this, than that one, I'm I'm sure you. Um, There's an unseen spiritual reality to the lives that we live. We're at spiritual warfare. It doesn't look like it, it doesn't feel like it most of the time. But verse 4, the God of this age, Satan, blinds people. And he's out to blind you. Think of the parable of the sower that Jesus tells. Satan is in the business of stealing the word of God away from people before they can get it. And blind people, trap them there. We've already talked about that. But he's also in the business of taking God's word away from Christians so that they wouldn't grow. That they would remain stagnant, that they'd get choked out, that they wouldn't grow to their full potential, that they'd eventually fall away. This spiritual reality calls for active Christianity. You'll find it incredibly difficult to live the Christian life passively and survive because Satan is active. That's the reality. You have to fight him off with activity. Here's some chilling verses for us. 1 Peter 5, 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so come maybe 20 pages to the right. That's probably a bit generous, maybe 10, 12, to Ephesians 6. I'm going to read some from verse 11. Verse 11. Put on the full armour of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What an unseen reality. Verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Skim down to verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Get busy in the Word of God. Know the truth. Don't let the devil get a foothold over you. This is active Christianity. Daily reading notes, we do them as a church for this very purpose. It's not too late to get started. I'm a perfectionist. I'm like, oh, wait for next term. No, just get into it. Get, get them on the email. Um, do whatever you've got to do to get into God's Word. Third implication, you can flick back now. Christians are to be slaves of one another. We have quite the reaction to this word as a modern-day society. And it's worth just quickly saying we have that reaction because Christians fought so hard against slavery, against slave trade, a very evil and particular part of slavery. But the word slavery is bigger than that in the Bible. And the Bible says we're slaves and we have a reaction to that. So much so that our Bible translators take it out. I don't want to have you react to that. Take it out. Look at verse 5. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The word servants. The word in the original language says slaves. Just like English, servants, slaves is two words. Same for ancient Greek where this is translated from. Servants and slaves. Verse 1, Paul says he's been given his servanthood from God. Verse 5, Paul says he's a slave. Now, we don't have time to explore all the profound implications of being slaves as Christians, slaves to God. Jesus is our Lord, after all. But notice who Paul says he's a slave to. Look at verse 5. Who is it? He says, you. Paul says to the Corinthians, we are your slaves, for Jesus' sake. Your slaves. We are to imitate Paul in this. We are slaves to one another. That's the reality of our existence. That's how our Lord Jesus Christ would have us live. When the world says, pursue freedom at all costs, you're free from everything, Um, get away from everything that, that pulls you down, you don't owe anything to anyone, the Bible says, God says, The truth of reality is quite the opposite. You are slaves to one another. You're not free to do whatever is best for you. Your freedom only extends to the point that you're free to do what's best for others. This is profound. We need to transform the way we think about ourselves in relation to others. We need to flip it on its head compared to the way our world thinks. So who have you come here for tonight? Yourself? Turn that upside down. We're here for one another. 
Who do you live your life for? Yourself? What do you, what do you use your talents for? To promote yourself at work? To increase your, the fatness of your CV? Uh, what do you use your money for? Enjoying the finer things in life? What do you use your time for? More and more pleasure-filled leisure? It mustn't be us. Chapter 3, verse 18, the verse before what was read. The Christian life is about being transformed more and more into Jesus. His life ought to be our life. And his life, get this, was one of slavery. What? Jesus, God, how can you say he's a slave? Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Guess what word's behind that one? Slave. Slave. Christ gave up his freedoms in heaven to become a slave for our benefit by dying the death which was for us. Paul practices what he preaches. He has the same mindset as Christ. He gives up his freedom, becomes a slave for the benefit of the Corinthians, um, taking on the same suffering that Jesus Christ took on for their benefit to the glory of God. Verse 15. And we too are called to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ in this way, by making ourselves slaves to one another, a life of suffering for the sake of others. Now, if you've not got this same attitude, we need to transform our understandings. We need to turn our understandings upside down. Get serving. Speak to someone around here, myself included. How can I get involved in serving at this church? How can I use my talents for others to the glory of God? How can I use my money for others to the glory of God? How can I use my time for others to the glory of God? How can I use what I'm passionate about for others to the glory of God? Imagine what this place would be like if all of us had the same mindset as Christ and as Paul in this place. We'd never want to leave. Sorry, pack-up team. Sorry, lock-up team. Sorry, not sorry. Fourth implication, life is all about the glory of God. What do you want to have achieved with your life? What would be an awesome result at the end of your life? You go, yes, that was a life well lived. A good job, good friends, healthy family, uh, good travelling experiences, comfy retirement, uh, and a pain-free death. (laughs) That's it for most people, right? How about, verse 15, look at it, the second half of it. How about causing thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God? Wouldn't that be a life worth living? Being involved in whatever way we can to bring glory to the God of the universe. If you pause and think about that for a moment, it's mind-boggling. Imagine that my finite, infinite life, done, one minute here, gone the next, imagine if that contributed to the glory of God, the everlasting God. That would be worth it. So how? How is God glorified? Verse 15 says, By the grace of God reaching more and more people, more and more, more and more, by the gospel being proclaimed. This is the ultimate reason, the ultimate end, why Paul does what he does, why he suffers the way he does, why he does ministry the way he does it. He endures. He enslaves himself to others. And wouldn't you too, if you just knew that there's the slightest possibility that your life could be increasing the glory to God through thanksgiving, through salvation. 
There's no better work to give yourself than proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to be saved and be thankful to God as a result. Paul describes it well in verse 17. Our light and momentary troubles, he says, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. All of Paul's sufferings, all his efforts are achieving an eternal glory. His eyes are fixed on that unseen reality. Don't you feel inspired to live the same way as Paul? You might say at this point, yeah, a little bit, but that ain't me. I'm not the evangelist. I can't do that. And it's worth pausing and reflecting on what you mean by that. Why would you say that? Why would you say it's not you, that you couldn't do that? What do you mean? Is it because you're worried that you won't know what to say? Is it because you're, you think you're not good enough or perhaps not good at, as good at others? Is it because you're fearful of rejection, that people will leave you? Now, friends, it's not about you. Remember what Paul has been saying this entire chapter. The gospel is a message unaffected by the messenger, simply put forth the truth plainly, nothing flashy. Speak the gospel out of your personal story. That's what Paul does. God has shone light into your heart, giving you this treasure that you might share it with others. The more ordinary you feel, the more opportunity is for God's power to be made great. Glory to God. Don't be worried about anything else. God is in control. He shines light into people's hearts, not you. And so, friends, life is about that. It is about the glory of God. God is glorified when thanksgiving overflows out of salvation. Know the truth, share the truth. Be caught up in that work as much as you possibly can. Give yourself and as much of your time as you possibly can to that. And when you run out of time, work less. Work a day or two less a week. You don't need more money. It's going to be gone tomorrow. Give more to this work. And when you've maxed out that time and you can't pay the bills anymore, ask your church family to support you to keep going. It's called full-time ministry. A bunch of people do it, <laughs> but nowhere near enough. If you, if you stop teaching kids as a, as a school teacher, kids will still be taught. There's a lot of people that care about that. So do we. If you stop engineering... Buildings and bridges will still go up. A lot of people really care about that stuff. If you stop nursing, people will keep being made well and sick and well again. But if you, if we, stop preaching the gospel, people will be blinded for eternity, lost for eternity. No one cares about that except us. There's a plentiful harvest, says God, of work that needs doing for his glory. And we need more workers. We need thousands more workers. If everyone in this work dropped every, in this building dropped everything tomorrow and all became full-time ministers of the gospel, we'd still need thousands more. Is it you? Why not? Think about it. Finally, fifth and finally, don't lose heart. Now, you're feeling overwhelmed. We've looked at a lot. Pretty barrage right now. But before you came here tonight, how are you feeling? Would you have said you were weary of the Christian life, worn out, tempted to give up? If Paul has to say to his, his self twice in this chapter, verse 1, verse 16, we don't lose heart, then I take it we have to preach that same message to us ourselves even more frequently. And so what's Paul's secret to not losing heart? How can we not lose heart and persevere and endure as Paul does? 
First, he knows God's in control. His whole life's work was given to him by God and God is in control of it. Second, he knows that there's a purpose to his suffering for the gospel, a glorious purpose. He knows that as Jesus had to suffer to bring him salvation, he has to suffer to bring salvation to others. And thirdly, Paul is focused on God's promise of the resurrection. He is convinced that God will save him. Verse 13, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Verse 14, Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Paul believes, therefore he speaks. Paul is convinced he knows that God will sustain him and raise him up. As Paul lives the same life of suffering that Jesus lived for the sake of others, he knows that God will raise him up just as Jesus was raised up. Do you know that God's in control? Do you know that he uses whatever suffering would come from serving the gospel for his glorious purposes? And are you focused on the future, the unseen reality of resurrection? Don't lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have shone light into our hearts, shown us the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus. We thank you that you've taken away that veil from our face that we might contemplate that glory face to face. And Father, we pray that you would transform us more and more to be more like Jesus. Please, by your spirit, give us strength to persevere and to trust in the promises of your resurrection and to to live this life not caught up on the fleeting, superficial scene, but to fix our eyes on the unseen. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.